Welcome to Sustainable Futures, the sustainability podcast from Kantar, the world's leading marketing data and analytics company. In each episode, we speak with senior experts from a wide range of disciplines to bring broad understanding to complex topic areas and shine a light on the most pressing sustainability issues facing business and marketing, all designed to help marketers create sustainable futures for brands and business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Kantar's Sustainable Transformation webinar. My name is Jonathan Hall, and I'm managing partner of the Sustainable Transformation Practice at Kantar. Kantar is a world-leading data analytics and consulting business, and the Sustainable Transformation Practice works at the intersection of brands, people, and sustainability. Now, the topic for today's webinar is, can marketing solve the growth versus sustainability tension? And I'm delighted to have two marketing giants with me today, Rupin Desai and Mark Deswan Ahrens. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves, starting with Rupin. Thank you for having me on, on, on this session, Jonathan. Uh, my personal purpose, and it states so on my LinkedIn as well for the last few years, is to build brands my conscience can live with. And, and, and through a career in advertising and then in PR, and uh, I started a collective called The Shed 28 about three and a half years ago. And for those last three and a half years, I've been an outside in CMO at uh, the Dole Sunshine Company, where we've been architecting a, a transformation with purpose and sustainability at the heart of the of, of the change. Great. Thank you, Rupin. Mark. Hello, Jonathan. And uh, also for me, a big thank you for uh, hosting us today. Um, very much support your work. So my name is Mark de Swan-Arons. I am Dutch and American. I've been living for the last 30 years in New York City, where I am this morning. And um, after a uh, marketing career at Unilever, I uh, started and ran my own uh, marketing consultancy focused on global brands called Effective Brands, together with my partner, Frank van der Driest. We did that for 14 years, sold that, and um, after a, a sort of small transition period, I started something new again with Frank called the Institute for Real Growth. And the Institute really focuses on the role that marketers have and can have on helping companies drive more humanized growth. Because the, um, the insight is that companies that outperform their peers don't um, work by the dictate of uh, shareholder primacy. They actually drive multi-stakeholder growth. So we focus on the data that supports that and then supporting CMOs and other growth leaders in helping their companies understand that, define it for themselves and then transition to a more humanized growth strategy. Excellent. Thank you both. So I'm going to dive in with the question in everyone's minds. Um, growth and sustainability, aren't they just irreconcilable? Rupin, and I'd like to start with you. Let's start with the big one, right? The big one. <laughs> no hiding here. Yeah. So let me start by stating that growth by itself is becoming increasingly difficult. However, given the context of the conversation we're speaking in, we, we need to hold the Friedman Doctrine, which was written in 1971, accountable for the way we define growth. And the, uh, Milton Friedman basically said, the, the role of any organization is profit for the shareholder. The missing parts of that, given the ecosystem we work in, has resulted in decades of growth 
but they've been degenerative growth. They've come, it has been growth at the cost of people. It has been growth at the cost of equality. It has been growth at the cost of the planet. And decades and decades of degenerative growth have created formulas of marketing which actually propagate this degeneration. So we, we look at marketing through the lens of consumerism. And therefore, we need to shave with four blades, even when two are enough. Or we need five cameras, and, 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 the, uh, and the phone needs to be discarded every six months because there is a newer model. Or there are models of premiumization, which is more plastic, more paper, better looking, more value. And, and when we break down these concepts of marketing, they all link back somehow to the Friedman Doctrine, to the degenerative growth, and therefore it is a moment in time that we need to pause. I mean, Mark uh, talks about humanized growth. I've been a participant, thankfully, in the IRG program last year. Uh, I am so glad I, I did it. And uh, because unless we redefine our systems of growth, our language of growth, our measurement of growth, we will continue the degenerative growth, which is not compatible with a sustainable world. Thank you, Rupan. Mark, what do you think? Growth, sustainability, can they be reconciled? Uh, no, I have nothing to add. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Ruben was being very humble when he said he had been a participant in the program. What he omitted to say, he was actually chosen as uh, the year's um, growth champion, uh, global growth champion. So uh, kudos uh, to Ruben and all his work at Dole uh, that were really part of the data set that he entered as proof for his leadership. Um, few thoughts. First is the definition of sustainability, and this is something that a lot of people trip over. Um, we, we choose to go by sustainable growth because um, sustainability of, takes a lot of people's minds purely to the environmental impact. And that's just a function of how the language has been used over the last decade. And um, obviously, as Rupin was setting up the degenerative growth effects like uh, inequality, that in my mind, or at least in a lot of other people's minds, isn't captured by sustainability or countering that. So we, we've chosen to go with the, 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 the name of sustainable growth because we're attaching that to the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. You have to choose some language that shares, and I don't have something that's bigger and broader than those 17 goals. Um, so uh, that's the first thing. The second is, is growth counter to that. And I believe, and uh, I, I'd be interested in your view yourself, Jonathan, having come from, from Kantar, I believe that people are driven by a need to grow. From the moment my babies came out of my wife's womb, um, I've seen an urge to grow. I think there is an energy there. There is a natural force that I, when I read books like Degrowth, I have a natural hesitancy to go that direction. For me, it would be far more about channeling the growth. And so when we start talking about moving away from what Rupin identified as the, the Friedman Doctrine, really that single-minded focus which uh, on, on shareholder primacy, which I'm reading something now 
that talks about Jack Welch's role in weaponizing that in, 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 in corporate history. What we need to do is shout so loud that it wasn't like that forever. Only the last 50 years have we started to think that it's just about the shareholders. And um, so, no, I don't think growth is counter to sustainable uh, development or sustainability as you uh, position it. I think they can go together very well when defined as growth for all stakeholders. Excellent. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the, the transition that we're going through will throw up huge new opportunities um, and new business models, which in turn will give those who are bold the, the chance to to grow and, and those who don't um, grasp that nettle well, as they have in the past, um, they will they will suffer in turn. So I think it's interesting growth will just be redefined is, is what I'm hearing you say. So, well, look, thank you for that, guys. So let's talk about the systemic business change that's going to be required to resolve this tension, because I think you were both hinting at that without without launching yourselves in. Mark, do you want to do you want to talk about the things that you've seen with IRG and all of the conversations you've been having with CMOs? When you talk about systemic change, and I couldn't agree more, I mean, we all have come from the marketing world and we all know that story where someone says of a winning campaign, we had no budget, no time, and that's when we became brilliant. The driver of innovation is need or urgency or desperation or whatever, but it's never we had too much money and all the time in the world. <laughs> so, you know, two days ago, California uh, announced that no gas or petrol uh, propelled vehicles are allowed to be sold in um, 35, I think, beyond 35. And I thought, think of the innovation license that suddenly unleashes when you just know the talking is over. We need other products to sell them. I think that's what's going to happen now. In fact, I think it is happening, but I think we've literally only scratched the surface and it excites me beyond words. Um, when you say to a company, no, 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 it's not just about the profits. There will be a dashboard. It's being developed as we speak that captures how much value you created or destroyed for every stakeholder. Were you a company where people went home and cried themselves to sleep because of the pressure, like Wall Street down here? Or the management consultants that exploit people beyond belief? Or were you a company that helped people grow and turn around after work and do things that unleash magic in their community? It will be captured. Same for the sustainability impact. Same for the community impact. Same for the customer impact in terms of um, satisfaction and delight. That's one that's been around for longer. But as people start to see that those things are all measured, I mean, I'll, I'll give one last example. Um, we, we've got the great resignation happening. I don't have the data points. You've heard me say this before, but I will. I'm looking for it. That companies that are really taking care of their employees are suffering far less from the great resignation than the companies that I was just mentioning before. Now, that data isn't just an interesting data point. It costs money to rehire, to retrain, to integrate half, if not three quarters, go bad, and then compensate. All of those things are now being captured. 
And so I think the new dashboard will unleash incredible innovation across value creation for all those stakeholders. And that to me is just beginning. So exciting. Thanks, Mark. <clears throat> Rupert, I'd love to hear you on this. I mean, picking on what Mark said, and I, I mean, not I was nodding a lot, not just because I'm a Indian, which nods come easily for us, <laughs> but I was nodding in complete agreement uh, because it almost feels like the last 50 years, we've been in the Jim Carrey movie where everything's fake or everything's created. Okay. And there are so, so whether you look at how governments measure progress, Okay, there is only a unilateral definition of growth, GDP, whether you look at how politicians get elected and what do they show as a measure of progress, it's quite unilateral. Uh, uh, whether uh, the economic markets and the financial markets, I mean, forget what I call the new era of Finkism, and I'm sure Larry Fink won't like me coining a new uh, thing based on his his views and his letters, but the new. So if you just ignore Finkism for a minute, the way financial markets have been measuring growth uh, unilaterally, and therefore it almost feels like everybody's boss. So the CEOs has a boss. It may be the financial markets or the share or, or, or the board. Uh, but it almost feels like everybody who's measuring success has a very unilateral view of growth equal to success. And what that has done, I mean, people people say we have a crisis, we have a planet crisis. And the reality is the planet's pretty cool. The planet has survived before us and the planet will survive after us. We have a human crisis, okay? Because when you look at how are we faring on all of the sustainable development goals? Current science tells us it's going to be 42, 41 more years, 2007-3, when we are currently destined to reach them. Okay, uh, so at the current speed, we're not meeting any of the sustainable development goals for another 41 years. Gender equality is another 160 years. The gaps of equality have become worse and the pandemic has accelerated it. So suddenly humanity as we know it uh, is living a very unequal and a very, a very, a very fragile existence. Uh, and the planet is not, it's going to survive. It's your and no. my children. Sorry, go ahead. But well, no, I was just going to say, Jonathan, it probably makes your show more interesting if we actually disagree with each other from time to time. So I'm going to do that <laughs> because I, I, I obviously I'm not countering that it's going to take too long and we need more innovation in the sustainability targets, because if an ice cap melts, it melts. And that's a disaster. But I actually think that the, um, the pandemic led, of course, it led to more inequality as well, but it also led to a dramatic increase in humanity. I think that everybody now knows the children of their colleagues. We even know their cats because they kept walking across the screen. And I think that we literally start business meetings and conduct ourselves at work differently to two years ago or three years ago. And I think there's a massive opening there to continue the humanity, the discussion around what's really important for people. And so, Rupert, of course, I agree with the data points, but I also think that actually 
we've got an opening which indeed was accelerated um, if Fink launched the ideas or at least gave them credibility from an investment community perspective, I think we all now have a door opening to push through because the most cynical CFO in the world now, even they recognize that you can't start a business meeting before understanding how everybody's family is. True, 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 true. Uh, and. Uh... And, and and maybe this is showing how glass half full, glass half empty, Mark. But but history has also taught us that we have limited, we have limit. I mean, there's this saying, right? Don't fight the last war. And it came out of yeah. World War II. And and the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008 taught us that we learned nothing from the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and, and therefore, whilst I agree with everything you're saying, it is almost a rallying cry first to myself and then to everybody saying, if we have learned all these amazing things through the pandemic, through becoming more humanized as colleagues, through measuring each other in a much more humanized way, it is incumbent upon all of us to not lose that as, you know, suddenly yeah. the, the supply chain crisis takes over and the fuel crisis takes over and we're going to have a very bad quarter and put all that good stuff I learned away because we can do it next year and a year later. And it's incumbent that we 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 don't fight the last war, uh, yeah. but fight the one we're facing now. So Rupin, I guess, I guess what I'm hearing there are a couple of things. <laughs> is one is the growth metrics that we use that are out of date. And, and I guess Kuznets, who, in, who invented GDP himself, said that it wasn't fit for purpose, right? And it was never supposed to be used that way. But the other thing is we can't kick the can down the road. I mean, I think you're both probably valiantly agreeing on that. It's it's we, we've got to do it faster, right? We don't have a window that's big enough to, to hang around anymore. Yes, hey. and one of the things, one of the things I've learned is is by moving the word profit to the word prosperity. Okay, I'm I'm talking about a very simplistic view mm -hmm. of of how we've been trying to do it over yeah. the last three years. There is there is some magic in the word prosperity, and then there is some magic in defining your stakeholders, not from a narrow lens uh, to just your your shareholder, but from a wider lens including the planet. So the moment planet becomes a stakeholder, the moment your own people become stakeholder, the moment community becomes a stakeholder, the moment uh, equality between communities become a stakeholder, as well as a shareholder. And then as you seek out to make each and every one of them prosperous, Suddenly the metrics, the system, the conversation, the measurement starts starts changing uh, in a way where people, planet and prosperity will go to thrive interdependently together rather than the old where one would thrive at the cost of another. Yeah. I, so I couldn't agree more that the metrics are crucial. And so all the developments, you know, that the CEO of Danon uh, is now part of the uh, leading the international measurement standardization drive. I don't exactly know what the official name of his uh, UN uh, thrust is, but 
I know that all the big accountancies uh, see massive innovation and growth opportunities by measuring these new metrics. And so they've also, you know, they've actually collaborated with each other, lo and behold. And um, I always get a little hesitant when I hear things like um, kicking the can down the road or we need to by this day do. It just doesn't motivate me. I honestly believe that I'm, I'm similar to at least a lot of human beings, that when I get a dashboard and there's a number there, I can get it to grow. That inspires me. When it's, I really have to do this by next week, it never has inspired me. And, 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 and that's why we're marketeers. I think, and I know you're going uh, to probably ask about the role of marketing. That's why I think we're so important because I believe people are inspired by positive uh, opportunity and they want to go there. And, and, and by the way, there is degrowth, but there's also enough growth. And I think that's a space that I'd like to um, learn more about. Um, it, it, just to be really personal for a moment, my wife and I, you know, I have a little bit of pension um, uh, put away. And just before we went on holiday, we, we met with the people that were basically trying to uh, provoke us into more aggressive strategies for our long-term pension. And, you know, they were throwing numbers around like, uh, well, your average is about six to seven percent, but we could take that to maybe 15. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, yeah, if we can do 7%, that's enough. That's more than inflation. That's enough. And down the line, I know that means somewhere that someone isn't choosing a company that is doing things that I don't think are ethical or only short term versus long term, which is what thinkism, uh, I never heard the term, Ruben, well done, um, is all about. I mean, Long term, I think for a lot of people, and now, of course, we're talking about a small subset that even have pensions, but the thinking of what is enough growth is a space of opportunity as well, I believe. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And thinkism, you heard it here first. Um, and, and prosperity there, Rupert, I think that's interesting. I'm going to shout out there to Tim Jackson and, and his work, Prosperity Without Growth. I don't know whether you were referring to that, but um, it's an interesting um addition to this conversation, which we're, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole here, but certainly worth you as... Um, and Colin Mayer at Oxford, of course. Right, as well. Exactly. Thank you, Mark. Okay, I'd, I'd just like to switch tack here and think about something which certainly our clients um, think about a lot and ask us about a lot, which is, um, you know, I'm an established business. It's more difficult for me. You know, the examples that, you know, I hear a lot are so-called born good companies. I'd just love to hear your perspectives on this, guys. You know, how different is it for an established business, you know, a doll, for example, versus a born good company? Rupin, do you want to kick off being from an established company? So, look, it's always easier if you're starting from scratch. You have an empty canvas and you can define how you plan to generate prosperity. But I don't think that the debate should be between between established businesses making it more difficult because it eventually comes down to is the CEO or the leadership team a purpose-driven team or not? I mean, Paul Pullman, when he started the journey, I think 12 or 13, maybe 14 years ago, and the first version of the Unilever Living Sustainable Plan was way ahead 
of the curve, uh, I'm sure there were people even within Unilever who were either not convinced or didn't understand it or were waiting for, oh, this is another fad that is going to do. And Unilever has had a whole host of those just like every other company. But Paul Pullman took a hundred plus year organization and made it the beacon of what and therefore, he is in his right frame when he talks about net positive companies. You know, uh, Danone has been leading the way for a long time now, not without its own ups and downs, as we as we've discovered with the last CEO. Dole's 120-year-old brand, 170-year-old company, suddenly figuring ways to make money out of the waste for the planet and waste. I'm, I'm quoting our work with Pinatex or Musa Fabrics. So I don't think it is about established companies versus uh, new companies. It actually, in my opinion, comes down to does the leadership have a point of view on how it intends to grow the company? Okay. And, and mm-hmm. what is their tactic to sleep at night once they've achieved the growth, will they sleep peacefully for the next future generation or will they just be bothered about their own short term uh, uh, perks? Can, can I weigh in on the same question? Go for it. Because um, I actually believe that if it's an established company, it might be easier. I'll, I'll tell you why. Because I don't know any company that has existed for more than 25 years and is in 25 countries around the world that was started to make as much money as possible. They weren't, never, never. They were always founder led. And I used to be a a purpose consultant, as you know, uh, Jonathan. And I can tell you the, the, the thrill that went down my spine as I stood in the Sony Museum headquarters and saw a piece of paper, hand signed, wrapped and protected in plastic, which they had a translation on the back said, we, the founders, and this is as Hiroshima was smoldering, we will prove to the world that Japanese technology can help improve lives. I, I still, I, I, I become emotional when I read it now. That was the purpose of Sony. Unilever, we've all beaten that horse beyond death, but it's so beautiful. Hershey, these are companies, General Motors, General Mills, General Electric, Every single one of them, Procter & Gamble, was started by a founder that wanted to make a difference and did so and therefore made money. Now, what happened next is that at some point the founder left and someone, usually the CFO, was put in charge. And 10 years forward, everybody thinks it's about making money. So now back to your original question. When it truly is an established company, I believe there is something to be discovered in the past, something beautiful. And now from a change management perspective, if you say to a new company, we're going to do this, people are like, yeah, that'd be nice, but let's see if it works. If you say, we're going to go back to what we always did and what made us famous. I haven't seen any employees ever say, yeah, but can we? And so I really, from a change management perspective, believe that there is huge opportunity when you are established, because I'm betting that you are established with a beautiful purpose. I want to, I want to, I want to, I love, I love this point. I love this point. And, and it's, it's one of those, you know, gobsmackingly genuine, authentic, Mm -hmm. because when you break this down, 
Okay, and 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 just to share an insight, when we were seeking a transformation at Dole, it existed in a history. There is a beautiful concept, a Japanese concept called Sampoyoshi. And Sampoyoshi says business, it has, is, is at its best when it's good for the buyer, it's good for the seller, and it's good for society. Now, obviously, there are newer versions called triple V satisfaction, the triple bottom line. But Sampoyoshi is a hundred plus year concept, which is hardwired in Itochu, which is the holding company for Dole. And therefore, the more we sought our past is how we were able to create the future. So I, I, I really love this point, Mark. Yeah, it, it's, it puts me in mind of um, the work by Collins and Porras and Built to Last, right? You know, that was absolutely core to, to, to their work as well. And I think we sort of forget those lessons, don't we? So thank you for that. So I'm going to pivot again, and I want to talk about, you know, with one thing I've sensed recently is that we're moving away from a sort of, of an investment, a business, a cultural perspective, even from sustainability, net zero, carbon neutral, to terminology like regeneration, net positive, carbon positive. You, know, you mentioned Paul Polman group and his, his book, Net Positive. And I know this is an area that you're very passionate about. I'd love to, I'd love to get your perspective on here, here on regeneration, regenerative agriculture. Can you just help us understand what that means and why it's important? So, I, I mean, the, the potentially three phases of the transformation, right? There is the business as extractive as we've known it. Uh, thank you, uh, Friedman Doctrine where it is, I will make money, but I will take away from people, equality and planet. So there is an extractive phase. There is a wonderful phase that the company are moving to, which is a sustainable phase, which is I will start using less. I'll start doing less of the damage, right? So even when they meet their goals, companies are saying, look, I will, I will start becoming neutral uh, and we've caused so much damage that there has to be a third phase, which is almost regenerative, saying, as I grow, my growth systems will actually add more to equality. My growth systems and the way I grow will add more to the planet. It's not I'll stop using carbon, I'll become zero. It's almost like I will find a way to be positive. So it's almost a journey where sustainability sits right in the middle. You can't get to regenerative till you are sustainable. And that's why I find most of the companies we work with, uh, because we do that with more than Dole at, at the shed, the collective, I found it. So the journey from extractive to sustainable, I think, exists across most companies. Some are serious about it. Some will get there. But for the leaders, the journey from being sustainable to regenerative is potentially my next big area of optimism, because that's when that's when we will start undoing the last 50 years of degeneration. Mark, regeneration, not positive. Yeah, I, I thought about this. Um, for me, regeneration is growth. So when I think about the impact we have, basically, I think what we when we when we say uh, you know all the all the all the damage has been done, it was because there was growth for one target group. 
and not for the others. And so literally we were destroying one versus the other. And all we're saying now is no, it's possible to create growth across four or five stakeholders of which nature is an important one, a very important one, society another. And so to me, when you are growing value, when you're generating value for the community or reforestation or whichever it is that you're showing positive, that's growth. But now growth in the other pillars. And so back to that dashboard, for me, regeneration means divided growth. Um, that's not a great word. Ruben, you'll think of something. Balance. In everyone. Prosperity. Balance. Yeah. Balance, yeah. Yeah. So regeneration is a sort of redefinition of growth, like a balanced um, stakeholder scorecard, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and that that will come. It will come soon. I mean, only um, was it three months ago, four months ago, the SEC announced. Uh, and now it's for discussion, but that's just two years before yep. it becomes law. The EU has an equivalent. The UK has an equivalent. So let's check, check, check. And. That's one of the stakeholders, nature. There will be soon one that measures how you treat your people. It's on glass doors at the moment. We don't have it in the same dashboard. Literally, when you're researching your next job, you have to go to multiple places. The glass door or equivalent will be in the annual report and someone will make a company do that because some companies treat their people well and some of them don't. And then, one by one, these metrics will come together. And when they're in that same annual report, you can bet your butt that somebody will say, well, hang on. OK, we're growing that. What about that one and that one? I think that's right. We're so I mean, you're talking about TCFD, aren't you? With a lot of talk about TNFD, so nature. And even now I'm hearing about TIFD for inclusion. So I'm sure that's true. So, um, Mark, you hinted at this before. Um, I'd love to get your perspective. Rupin, you and I have been on a, on a panel together about this one. <laughs> marketing. Does marketing have the right to have a voice in this conversation? We, Mark, do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I disagree with the question. <laughs> <laughs> have a right. Uh, so, again, I believe everybody wants to grow. I think everybody wants to make an impact and i think marketers want to particularly make an impact it is um it is something to the nature of marketers uh, a good marketer feels like the ceo of a company may he or she may not be the ceo but they should be thinking like the ceo where are we going to grow and uh, and then inspire the organization of the opportunity uh, um, align the organization on, on, one, on one version of the truth, because we all have our pet peeves, but of the size of the opportunity, the um, effectiveness of the competition and the space we're going to fill and then drive an innovation process to deliver it's a profit. Now, as you start, start to say all stakeholders are important, you have an opportunity which is unparalleled for marketers. Because if I may take one step back, the discussion was actually marketers are using losing their relevance. They're not as influential anymore. They're not necessarily in the boardroom where we discuss where to play five years from now. Well, if the company buys in, as for example, the Business Roundtable has, to this concept of multi-stakeholder growth, the next question is, what is growth? for all of those stakeholders. Who are those stakeholders? What are their underlying needs? What are their unmet needs? And what is the opportunity for us, given our core competencies, to deliver there? Now, those are the questions that are generic to every marketer's skill set. 
If you can't answer those, don't call yourself a marketer. But you can apply them to your customers, as you usually have been doing, but as easily as a partner to the head of HR, to your colleagues, as easily with your CH, um, a CSR colleague, to the community and the environmental um, NGOs that you're dealing with and that are key stakeholders. What do they think of you now? Where are you? What are you doing? Where are the gaps? Where are the opportunities? What is growth? So I think marketers are really well placed to step up. And this is the obligation that I see for every marketer into a role of being a partner to everyone in the Exco, including the boss, to paint the picture of the growth opportunity and to convince people that actually through creating value for these other stakeholders, we're probably also going to drive more growth for our financial stakeholders. So what a role for marketing, because we always have had this role. On the one hand, internally inspiring people about the purpose and the opportunity, and externally convincing people that we have solutions for their unmet needs. Thank you, Mark. Rupin, I know you want to let fly on this one as well. You know, I'm look. Marketeers, marketeers have always been the, the job of a marketeer is to be the engine of growth, and as we find a new language for growth, right? As we find a new measurement, a new dashboard for that growth, as we find what that, how many multifaceted this new growth is, defining those areas measuring those areas, bringing the CFO, bringing the head of HR, bringing the head of engagement, bringing the CEO, bringing the board. I mean, there isn't a more exciting time for marketing to take lead on this new humanized regenerative growth agenda. Should we continue to be in the short term sales activation then yes, we will be questioned about our relevance. But therein lies each individual choice. Each leader needs to make that choice saying, do I continue in a short-term sales activation promotion role and call myself a marketeer? Or do I take this change, uh, heart, body, mind, and soul and bring around this awakening in each organization? And I think there isn't a more exciting time to be a humanize growth marketeer or regenerative growth marketeer or just a marketeer who builds brands that their conscience can live with so that leads me perfectly into my final question here guys so of the the role of marketing that you described um within organizations how will the role of marketing have changed in five years time if we've managed to achieve what you have each been describing mark so we call this the marketing uh, ikigai. Um, and so I think that if, if as a marketer five years from now, you have not built far more solid bridges to other disciplines, you have not been participating in value proposition development for every one of the major stakeholders, and you've not been recognized by your colleagues as a crucial partner in the process of the route to multi-stakeholder growth, you failed. I'm a glass half full. I think most marketers go to school and then go to work 
with the quest of making an impact. And so at IRG, we see ourselves as an enabler of that, of identifying the opportunity and bringing together not just the data points and the best practices, but also the personal leadership parts. We call it the Da Vinci growth CMO. And it's a profile that really combines head, left and right and heart which is what da vinci did he was a scientist he was an artist and he was one of the founders of the humanist movement so i think the marketer five years from now is a da vinci polymath is really a partner to their colleagues is fully integrated in the business and has a real sense of how the business is generating growth across multiple stakeholders Ripen. Each marketing leader starts with what is their language of marketing that will lead to growth. And therein lies the opportunity, right? Uh, because there has been a lot of conversations around digital platforms, short-term sales activation, the loss of long-term brand equity. Uh, and each marketeer has chosen a formula for themselves, which then cascades down the organization uh, drives innovation, drives uh, growth, and so on and so forth. Now, as we look at the next phase of redefining the growth engine and what it means, I mean, uh, marketing marketing's heart and central and is almost the CEO. The CMO's job needs to be the CEO of the humanized regenerative growth for the, for, for the business. Thank you, Rupan. And guys, so we've come to the end of the conversation. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. And I've loved the way we've moved from the highly academic and intellectual through to really pragmatic, practical, how do you make this happen within organizations? So I want to thank you both. Um, you're both extremely busy. You're both at opposite ends of the day. So really appreciate your time. We've covered a huge amount of territory from, you know, literally the big question where we started around can um, growth and sustainability be reconciled? We've talked about systemic business change. We've talked about um, the, the challenges of an established business versus a born good or not. Um, and then diving into the notions of regeneration and where marketing has a role to play both today and in five years' time. So I want to thank you again. Really appreciate your time and um, look forward to uh, seeing you again very soon. Thank you. Well, and Jonathan, if I may thank you and give a shout out to you and your work, because I think it's uh, it's admirable what you're doing. I think you can make a huge impact uh, using the whole Kantar uh, machine to help clients understand this and measure it and move in the right direction. So um, shout out to you and this series for making it important. Thank you. You've been listening to Sustainable Futures, a podcast from Kantar. For all episodes and more information, visit kantar.com. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode.